want to thank our music team, as always, for all the work that they've put in to leading us this morning. Grateful for the opportunity to enjoy, uh, even, as it were, mystic, sweet communion in song this morning with our church body. Uh, we are once again finding ourselves in the Gospel of John. I look forward today to talking about a passage that is common. I think many of us know the story but perhaps contains some insight that is easy to overlook. Uh, we'll begin today by reading from John chapter 4. And so if you are next to a Bible, I think I read somewhere that the average evangelical house has something like eight Bibles in it. So hopefully most of you are relatively close to a Bible. If you can find one and grab it and turn to the, the book of John. And we're going to read this morning, beginning in John 27. And so if you would like to, and you're able to where you're at, feel free to stand as we customarily do when we are gathered together to honor the reading of God's word. And again, we're reading in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 27. It says this, At this point his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? At this point, then, the story follows the woman back to Sychar, but we're going to continue in verse 31, continuing with Jesus and his disciples. So look with me at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we come to your word, we are reminded of the great work in which your son was engaged and in which we are now engaged, that work which continues until you return to bring this world to its ultimate Sabbath rest and your children to their eternal home. May we be encouraged this morning. I know many are feeling discouraged. But may we take strength and sing the big picture of what you are up to and what you have accomplished and what you're doing in us and through us will continue to accomplish for your glory. And so this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So gardening is hard work. I don't know how many of you guys have been out trying to do some gardening recently. We've uh, done a little bit at our house. We've been rearranging some things and trying to put in some garden beds. And it's, it's, been, uh, it's been difficult. Part of that is uh, we are surrounded by beautiful maple trees, but that means that our soil is like one part dirt, four parts maple roots. But after spending many hours gardening. Uh, we stood back to admire what we've had, which is now 
bare dirt. And then, then we had a, a couple days of beautiful sunshine and rain, everything a garden needs. And this morning we woke up and looked out and, and we still have dirt to show for it. It can be a, a discouraging hobby to take up. Uh, something, I brought a little piece of garden with me, a little flower pot. And for a long time, a flower pot like this is basically just a cup of dirt. The Christian life can occasionally feel that way. And this morning, I want us to let Jesus take us inside what's going on in the fields of Christian work so that we learn to see the little flower pots of our lives as not so much just a pot of dirt, but a vessel of potential and see what God is trying to accomplish. And I think we're going to find perhaps a couple hidden secrets to working in the fields of God today. And so if you've got your notes, you can see it's simply called a short field guide to Christian work. And that's what we're going to be looking at. And there's two very, I think, simple practical principles that we're going to see in our passage this morning for how we can live a life in the fields of God the way that he intended us to and not be discouraged and the first is going to come from verse 27, and then again, verses 31 to 34. And the reason we're breaking this up is because we're trying to follow one particular camera shot, if you will, in this story. We've been, in the last couple of weeks, looking at this incident known typically as the woman at the well, where Jesus, going from the south back up to the north, has passed through Samaria, and he's stopped at Jacob's well in the city of Sychar that's located in Samaria in the central part of the country. And there... His disciples go off into town to buy food while Jesus stays at a well and meets a lady from town who comes to draw water in the heat of the day. And they get into this conversation, and the conversation starts off about cultural prejudices. I want a drink. Why are you asking me for a drink? You people don't talk to my people. And then it moves on to a conversation about worship and politics even, and eventually ends up with a realization on the part of the woman that she's having a conversation with somebody who is not just a Jewish man, an unusual Jewish man at that. She is having a conversation with the Messiah, and she presses Jesus on that point. And he tells her, I am. And that's where we've ended our conversation last week. This is also when the disciples now come into the picture. They've returned with food. And as they approach they're going to be a little bit flabbergasted at what's going on. And next week, we're going to find out what happens with the woman's side of the story because she's going to leave now and she's going to go off into the town and there's going to be a bunch of really cool things that happen around her side of the story. But we'll hear about that next week. But Jesus is now going to be alone with his disciples and he's going to be having a conversation with them. And so that's what we're looking at this week. And it begins in verse 27, as we saw already. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? This has got to be, looking back, perhaps one of the most awkward and potentially funny moments in the life of, the Jesus, of Jesus and the apostles as they looked back and remembered that scene of them together. The disciples, again, coming back from having acquired food and supplies from town, 
they see Jesus sitting there at the well, and they see him engaged in this animated conversation with this woman. And immediately their assumptions kick in. Immediately they start thinking what they think this all means. And those assumptions are betrayed by the questions that they are noticed thinking but not actually asking out loud. What do you seek? Sort of a a way of them saying in their time, what do you want? And why do you speak with her? Uh, Some interpret these questions as both being thought towards Jesus. But I think perhaps it's better to think of it as one question is what they're thinking about the woman and the other question is what they're thinking about Jesus. For the woman, they're like, what do you want? What are you doing here? And for Jesus, why are you engaging her? Why do you have anything to do with that lady? Some suggest that they keep these thoughts to themselves quietly because they know that they are, they are culturally biased. They know that they've got all these mistaken notions of, of interactions between different cultural groups and between the genders. And even though they just can't help sort of the, the biased thinking that they've grown up with, they're, they're patiently waiting to see what Jesus will do. And given the gospel accounts, I'm inclined to think that might be giving them too much credit. Others essentially think that they're basically just too shocked by what's going on and too embarrassed to be called out that they don't even know what to say or where to begin. And I think that's probably closer to the truth. You can see they begin by asking, what do you want or what do you seek? There's all these cultural expectations they have. The well at this time was kind of known a little bit as a singles bar, but it should have been a safe place to go to in the heat of the day. But now here's Jesus and here's this woman and they're having this conversation where everybody can see what are people going to think and why is this woman here at this time of day? What kind of woman is this? What does this say about her and her background? Why doesn't she come with all the other women like a respectable person would do? And... And she's a Samaritan. What's she doing engaging with a Jewish man and a rabbi at that? Who does she think she is? And towards Jesus, they're thinking, why do you speak with her? They're also wondering what Jesus is up to. Why is he talking, notice, with a woman? It says they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, not just speaking with this woman, but they're like, why is he talking to women in general? Why is he talking to a woman here at a place that he knows is going to reflect badly on his reputation as a holy man in the Jewish community? He's a rabbi. Rabbis don't do this. One historian commented, uh, and looking back at all the different directions from the rabbis on instructions for how they were to conduct themselves socially, he found rabbinic teaching that said this, one should not talk with a woman on the street not even with his own wife, and certainly not with somebody else's wife because of the gossip of men. Uh, Somebody else said, it is forbidden to give a woman even any greeting. And so in a culture when it was seemed, it was deemed to be the appropriate thing to do for a Jewish man, in particular a Jewish rabbi, to just ignore women entirely, here's Apparently, Jesus sitting at the singles bar having this one-on-one heated animated conversation with a single woman. These things are just simply not done. This is going to be all over Facebook. You can't contain this anymore. His reputation is going to be ruined. 
And while they're all standing there thinking loudly, the woman gets up, leaving her water pot as she does so and heads off to Sychar. And only then does an actual conversation start between Jesus and his disciples. And like I said, next week we're going to follow this camera shot as it trails the woman off to Sychar and then follow it back as, as she returns. But today we're going to look at Jesus and his disciples and the conversation that they have. And we're going to see that it is more than just a little similar to the conversation Jesus just had with the woman. So jump down with me then, if you would, to verse 31. And it begins by saying this, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. So the woman takes off, the disciples approach, Jesus is there. They're all thinking these thoughts. What is going on? What are you doing? Why are you talking to each other? But the only thing that actually comes out of their mouth is, all right, let's just sort of forget that whole thing happened. Here's food. All right, Rabbi. And I wonder if that use of rabbi there, I'm sure it was a common title that they gave to Jesus, but I also wonder if it was a little bit the disciples kind of trying to sneak in like, you're a rabbi, remember? Rabbi, eat. Eat. So they bring this food that they've purchased and encourage Jesus to eat. But then Jesus does essentially the exact same thing he did to the woman. He pivots on this very tangible physical manifestation of nourishment to teach a lesson about a more important form of nourishment, one that the disciples had just witnessed but completely missed. And so Jesus tells the disciples in verse 32, he said to them, I have food that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? With the woman, Jesus began talking about water. And he began talking about not just the water that he wanted to drink from the well, but the living water that he could supply. And now he's not talking about normal food. He's talking about some other kind of food. Just like with the woman, he was telling her, I'm in possession of a secret kind of water that you don't know I have. Now he's telling the disciples, I'm in possession of a secret kind of food you don't know I have. And the disciples, just like the woman, don't get the jump. They don't get the change. And so they immediately, again, start talking to each other, not to Jesus. I mean, this could have been cleared up pretty quickly if somebody said, well, Jesus, you don't appear to have any food. Did she, like, cook you with some meal or something? Like, where's your food coming from? Instead, they start talking to each other. And that has to be a little bit comical. Like, are they just sort of, like, kind of you know, sidling up alongside it. Did, did you give him anything already? They're talking to each other. And Jesus mercifully decides to put these disciples out of their awkward misery and gets right to the point and teaches a lesson them himself. In verse 34, he says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. With the woman, the misunderstanding, if you remember, is, was over the nature of living water, over what Jesus was giving away. But now in this case, Jesus says their confusion is over the nature of true spiritual food, not what Jesus is giving away, but in fact what Jesus was taking in, what he was nourished by. And notice that this is more than a little counterintuitive because we tend to think of food as something that, that we consume to prepare us for work. 
Food is what we bring in so that we will have the strength to endure work. And the work is then what we pour out and where our efforts are, are spent and where we become exhausted. But for Jesus, he's describing the exact opposite principle at work. For him, it was a fulfilling and sustaining thing to do his Father's will. And that's why our first point this morning, if you have your outlines, is the satisfaction of service. The satisfaction of service. This is the point that Jesus is trying to teach us. For him, work was how he ate. The life of Jesus, and John makes a big deal about this throughout the gospel, is a life of obedience, and particularly obedience in action. And what we discover is that Jesus, our perfect example in all things, seems to really, truly enjoy that obedience. He finds it satisfying. First, he says, my food is to do the will of God. God's will is the wishes and desires of God. And Jesus says, I get nourishment by knowing what my father wants and then doing it. And then secondly, accomplishing God's work is his food. His fulfilling, satisfying work is to bring to completion that which God himself is engaged in doing, to find out what his father's doing and then to help make it happen. Some of you may recall as a child doing this, or if you're a parent, you've seen your children doing this, the joy that they have in coming alongside and helping dad get a job done. And we might ask ourselves in the question, what is that great work that God is accomplishing and that Jesus is obediently feeding on? Well, Jesus tells us, and John records it for us. If you turn over just a couple chapters to John chapter 6, John chapter 6, verses 39 to 40 says this, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This work that Jesus loved to do was drawing to himself all who had been given to him by the Father so that they might be raised up on the last day to enjoy eternal life in fellowship with the triune God. So the disciples are just trying to see if Jesus wants hummus. Right? That's where their minds are at. But Jesus is trying to let them know that something much more satisfying than lunch has just happened. He had been engaged in the joy of leading one of the elect from darkness into light, and even now a much greater accomplishment was about to take place. Unknown to the disciples, a crowd is even now forming as this woman goes around and begins to spread her testimony. As they're munching on lunch, a throng from Sychar is about to, or perhaps even is already on the way to join them, a large group of people being brought in as was promised to be given to the Son as part of a harvest. And we're going to study that next week. But this week, we'll get a chance to see it from a distance because that is where Jesus directs our attention next and the disciples' attention next in verses 35 to 38. But before we get there, I want to stop and consider 
what we've already learned from all this so far. And there's a lot going on in these verses. And I want to challenge us first by way of application this morning to perhaps live by the old adage, WWJT. What would Jesus think? What would Jesus think? I know anybody younger than my generation probably doesn't even remember the WWJD bracelets uh, and bumper stickers and coffee cups and just about anything else you can print on that swept evangelicalism for a while. What would Jesus do? But in this passage, I want to encourage us to ask ourselves the question, whenever we encounter a situation, what would Jesus think about this? It is so easy when we see something happening in in our lives, whether that be something going on in our marriages or whether that be a pandemic going on in our society, to immediately think whatever our cultural biases incline us to think. And those thoughts are always going to be as Solomon would have said in Ecclesiastes, thoughts that do not go above the sun, that are clamped down to the natural realm, that are limited to the fallen scope, that are influenced by our sinful desires and the shortcomings of our human affections and thinking. What if the disciples had approached the situation from afar and their first question was not, what are you doing? But it was, what are you doing? What if their first thought was, there is something happening here that I would not have expected, which means I have something to learn from the great teacher. And what is standing around, instead of standing around just looking silent and confused and awkward, they had said, Master, something is happening here which is not done. Teach us. Help us to see this conversation the way you see it. For you kids out there this morning, let me encourage you Pester your parents. Pester your Sunday school teachers, your pastors. If you're old enough, your youth staff. Have is a ready question always at hand. How would Jesus want me to think about this? My friend said something really mean about me. and I feel like our friendship is broken. How would Jesus think about this? I read this in the Bible. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem to fit in with the way that I thought God was. Help me to think the way Jesus would about the truth of God's word. Because as children, and even as parents, we need to think about this as well. We do not want to raise a generation that has been cowed into, quote, doing the right thing in an unthinking way. We want a generation that has learned to think the thoughts of Jesus and therefore will live as he would live. So WWJT, what would Jesus think? And secondly, don't be a hangry Christian. Maybe you've seen that word floating around, hangry, hungry and angry, that grumpiness you get when you feel like you need to eat something. Have you perhaps felt worn down and frustrated as a Christian and just serving God Sometimes feel more like you're just an overworked factory worker with your shifts that are too long and no meal breaks. It seems increasingly true that the evangelical landscape is catered to this sort of a Christian. 
I've lost track of how many churches and ministries advertise themselves like some kind of a Jesus spa. Come in, we'll take care of all your aches and your pains, and we'll relieve all your burdens, and we'll rub your tired feet, and understand if you just need to take a break from all that hard work of being a witness to Jesus in a fallen world. It is true that the church must be a place where the grace and comfort of God are applied to the hurting and the suffering. Absolutely. It is also true, though, that I think in many cases we've forgotten how satisfying it should be to spend ourselves in and for the work of God. What a privilege to be a part of Jesus drawing all the elect to himself. What purpose there is in doing this faithfully as a mother in teaching the character of God and his gospel to foolish children. And I apologize to any of your children that are offended by that. But the Bible says foolishness is bound up in the heart of every child. And that's just the way we are. What significance there is in doing our jobs excellently while bearing up under a miserable boss. Because we are demonstrating what it means to work for Christ and not for man. What motivation to tackle every homework assignment, even the ones that seem pointless, with joyful diligence, because we steward each responsibility for the king. The food that fed the soul of Jesus is now the food that has been served to us. And so we should take and eat. It is the most obvious, it is most obvious that the fullness of Christian harvest takes place in the glories that await us at the end of the age. But sometimes I think we forget that our faithfulness now often leads not only to the satisfaction now, but even to a harvest now in the present. The disciples of Jesus were just about to witness an amazing gathering in of souls in Sychar, something they could have never imagined. And it was all tied to that inexplicable conversation Jesus had had with this one hurting woman at the well when the disciples were out buying munchies. For them to fully get the lesson of what they were about to witness, and for us to fully get the lesson, Jesus is going to set the stage now for us for what we're going to study next week by laying out a second key principle for Christian field work. The first is this. The work itself is meant to be satisfying not with a view yet even to the results of that work, but to do the work of the Father should nourish our souls. But secondly, I want to look at the harmony of harvest. The harmony of harvest, where two things that were often pitted against each other are brought together into a mutual rejoicing around the harvest. Look with me at verses 35 to 38. Jesus begins by saying, Do you not say... There are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. And this is something Jesus loves to do in his teaching. Have you not heard? Is it not said? Do they not say? Taking some common thing that was spoken at the time, and then putting a twist on it, elevating it, illuminating it, turning it in a bit of a different direction. That's what Jesus is going to do right now. He's pulling in a common proverb in the region. 
It may have actually been a phrase they got from the Greeks in the area, but it was certainly something everybody in any kind of an agricultural society, a society that survived by raising crops and goods, any of them would have understood this and said it probably frequently. The fields probably did not look very impressive just yet, but just wait. Four more months. Fruit trees are just now blossoming out across our valley. And small shoots are just starting to poke up through garden beds. Or so I'm told. Mine's still mostly just dirt. Not much to look at. But wait four months until September. Green beans, corn, garlic, squash, apples, blackberries, blueberries, peaches, tomatoes, and zucchini. So much zucchini will be bursting forth everywhere ready for harvesting. Almost makes you hungry for lunch just thinking about it. And the disciples, as they ate their food and thought ahead to the feasting and plenty of the harvest, they were probably nodding their heads. Oh yeah, four more months. How wonderful it is when harvest season rolls around. The feasting, the gathering, the plenty. And the region they were in was a perfect place to make this illustration. The region around Sychar and into the north was full of fields, full of rich soil. They had probably spent quite a few hours just that morning trudging past field after field of infant crops growing in freshly planted fields. And things would look so different in just a few months. But then Jesus gives the twist. Look up, Jesus says. The fields have skipped ahead instantly to fall. The harvest is here. And I wonder how many of the disciples actually like looked up at that moment and started looking around at the fields. Probably most of them. They're scratching their heads. What is what is Jesus talking about? First Jesus is hungry, then he has food, and the food is doing God's work. And now we skipped ahead from spring to fall, and the harvest is here, but I'm looking out and the fields are empty. What is going on? Sometimes we are a little bit uncharitable to the disciples. There is great advantage to having God's word written where we can study it slowly. But have a little compassion for these guys trying to keep up with Jesus in real time as he is teaching them these spiritual truths. What is going on there, wondering? And what indeed? But Jesus, the master teacher, has once again grabbed the attention of the disciples and now explains one of the most important principles in the Christian life, sowing and reaping. Look with me at verses 36 to 38. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Even now, Jesus tells the disciples, reaping and gathering are happening but not actually in the physical fields around Sychar. Instead, the harvest was happening in Sychar. And it is happening in all the other towns and cities that have been taught and in which they have baptized and where the gospel has been proclaimed. A harvest of souls is being brought in. The fields are full of that fruit which is destined for life eternal. And there is only one kind of crop in the universe 
that fits that description. As we already saw in John chapter 6, it is those who have been given to the Son by the Father who are marked out by the fact that they will believe in the Son. And that is the purpose of John's entire gospel, is that this would be something that would spark yet another harvest in the hearing, that those who read these words of Jesus would too believe and become part of the harvest. Because unknown to the disciples, as they debated food and stared at the fields, an enthusiastic witness to the Messiah has been running around town telling people that she has found the Messiah. A great harvest of souls is perhaps, as I said, already parading toward the well and the disciples. And what a paradigm-shattering harvest that will be. And Jesus wants to make sure that certain aspects of this harvest are not lost on the disciples. So he gives them yet another proverb with yet another twist. It is true today, as it was in the time of Jesus, that often one person does a lot of the hard work and somebody else just gets to enjoy the benefits. Anyone ever experienced this? Have you ever done almost all the work on a school project, but then you know your fellow students get to enjoy the A that they didn't do anything for? Maybe you come with a clever joke. You whispered it to your friend, who then shouted it out to the whole room, and everybody thinks your friend is funny. Not you. Or perhaps you've contributed to the success of your business invested yourself into it and, and improved their outcome tremendously only to get fired or cut out of their profits. When things like this happen in the ancient world, they often shook their heads and just looked at each other and said, one sows and another reaps. One sows and another reaps. It was considered a pretty negative truism. That's just sort of how life is. And Jesus pulls this quote and he says, yeah, that is true. And isn't that encouraging? He's going to twist this proverb from a negative reality into a positive truth because unlike the human economy where one sows and another reaps means loss, in God's economy, one sows and another reaps means you get two rejoicers for the price of one task. The disciples were reaping the fruitful harvest they had not labored for. They were privileged to come alongside Jesus at the fullness of the ages there, here. They had not written the prophecies of the Old Testament. They had not suffered for the preservation of the Torah, the scriptures. It was not their prophetic voice that had cried out in the wilderness and awakened the nation to think again of the Messiah. John the Baptist had done that. And it was also not the disciples who had contributed anything but slack jaws and judgmental thoughts to what was about to happen here in Sychar. They had just shown up at the right time to grab a basket and see it filled with a harvest. One sows, but another reaps. For the disciples, this was their lucky day, reaping time. But not every day is reaping day. And Jesus wants to make sure that the disciples understand that in the economy of God, sowing and reaping must be separated or may be separated in experience, but they are united in importance and in joy. The reaper never steals the blessing from the sower in God's field. Indeed, as Jesus said, they are both engaged in the food of God's work so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. 
And there is rich encouragement in this for us here. First, we are encouraged here to go to the fields. Go to the fields. We do not know on any given day if we will be called primarily to sow or to reap. But we know on every given day that our work is in the fields and our passion is for the harvest. Every field is a sphere of relationships. It's not a program. It's not even a place. It's people. That is God's field. We live with our hearts inclined towards people and towards seeing them enter into the joyful harvest of the children of God. It's a style of living that our pastor of discipleship here, Caleb Klontz, loves to call gospel intentionality. Some of those fields are fully accessible during a stay-at-home order. How we disciple our spouses, our children, or others under our own roof is our first and most critical field of gospel ministry. But there are other fields. God has scattered you among the cities and counties of the Spokane, Coeur d'Alene region and plopped you next to neighbors he wanted you to impact. How are you working in those fields? Even now, how can you develop those relationships in Christ? But we don't have to even stop there, and indeed we must not. Some of you will be called to work in fields as far away as Idaho, or Italy, or India, or Iran, or Indonesia. To the extent that there are pockets of people, there are fields to work in, And we as individuals and as a church want to work in any field God sends us to. I want to talk to perhaps some of you kids out there, even as children, that perhaps in you is a growing desire to be used by God to bring the good news of the gospel to people who have never heard it before. I want to encourage you, maybe even today, talk to your parents and those around you about this desire and let us even as a church encourage in you, explore that adventure in you. I'm still waiting and longing for the day when we as a church can send out our first full-time global outreach partner raised and sent from Valley Bible Church. Is it you? How cool that will be when that day comes. We love the global outreach partners that God's allowed us to partner with. And we continue to support and pray for them and continue to do that, especially in these times that are difficult, that are out on fields far flung. But how special would it be for one of our own to have that privilege of being able to send out into the world? Perhaps, though, God has not called you to the ends of the earth. Perhaps God has called you right here. We must never forget that this is a field too. And we must work it just as much as anybody in the most remote country of the world should. Go to the fields. Incline yourself towards relationships. And secondly, sow patiently, reap gratefully. Sow patiently, reap gratefully. The disciples were about to reap a harvest they did not work for. Many of them would later in their lives sow in places where they would die as martyrs. And it would be left to later generations to reap their fruit. We must learn to find our food in the sowing. 
We have not failed if our fields are not white unto harvest. We have failed if they have been left fallow and without seed. So faithfully and so joyfully. It isn't glamorous. It's a lot of hard plowing through cake soil, scattering seeds that sometimes get eaten by the birds and spreading manure that smells bad. But it's critical work and it's glorious work and it ought to be satisfying work. Nobody ever harvested a bountiful crop that was not the result of someone's sowing. If we happen to be blessed with reaping a harvest, we must do so gratefully. We have not embarrassed the laborers who have gone before us. Aha, see, you've been here months. I show up and I've got lots of food. No, we have entered into their labor. We see this sometimes in youth ministry. I've heard on more than one occasion when a student has had a a significant spiritual growth moment as a result of a conversation with a youth staffer or through a lesson or activity, the parent will make a comment, something like this, I've been telling them that for years. And usually it's with a slight note of, of exasperation or frustration, like, what am I doing wrong? I've been telling them that for years, and you tell them once, and all of a sudden it makes sense. I must just be a failure as a parent. Except that's not how it works. It was the years of telling the child the same thing that cultivated their heart. When we are able to be present for a time of reaping spiritual fruit, it is only ever entering into the sowing that has gone before. The Billy Grahams of this world, as it were, stand on the ministry of mothers and fathers and Sunday school teachers, small-town pastors, faithful friends, and many others. As Jesus told Nicodemus, the Spirit blows where he wills. You can't anticipate or criticize. We don't know why God works in people's lives the way he does, or when he does, or through the people he does. That's not for us to worry about. Our joy is simply this. We serve the Lord of the harvest And we all get to work in his fields. And we all get to share in the joy of the harvest when it comes in. Perhaps God has put you in a field where it seems like you've been staring at bare dirt for a long time. Trust the Lord of the harvest and do not grow weary in tending to that field as long as God puts you in it. For your kids this morning, I want to encourage you to do something. Get a cup or a little flower pot like this one. My kids painted this one. It's pretty cool. Plant something. Plant something in it. Water it. Take care of it. And as you do so, you'll notice something. It takes a lot of patience to appreciate a plant growing. And that, I think, is a very valuable lesson to learn We need to appreciate the process and the patience that God has woven into the design of life. There are going to be those rare instances when you run into the dandelions of this world, right? It just seems like you look at the dirt, there's nothing there. You look away, you look back, and boom, it's already gone to seed. 
But most people, most of us are not dandelions. And we need to learn to appreciate that God has designed the process of spiritual growth to often occur slowly, gradually, with faithful care over time. And so I would encourage you, plant something. And then as you go and check on that each day, remember, that's what God's doing in your heart too. And pray and ask God, help me to grow slowly but faithfully, just like this plant does. And secondly, if you're a younger saint, or even the older saints, let's remember to express gratitude for those who have sowed into your life. Not just for those who were there at the moment of reaping. Not just the one that was there when you prayed to ask Jesus into your heart, if that was part of your Christian experience. Or when you rededicated your life that one time. Or when you were at that camp that brought you to tears and changed uh, you, you into finally dealing with sin in your life. Not just those moments and those people. Though do thank them. Thank those who have faithfully, carefully, lovingly, perhaps even in your opinion sometimes boringly, ministered the truth of God to your heart over your life and thank those who are doing so now. As we now get to turn our attention to the Lord's table, I want us to see how this all fits together so beautifully. What a perfect culmination this is to everything that we've discussed this morning. And I invite you to go collect the cup and the bread elements if you haven't already that the ones that you set aside for this morning. And as you do so, I want you to consider this. As we discussed, the entire life of Jesus was dedicated to accomplishing the work of his Father. But that work had an eventual conclusion. Having proclaimed the good news that the long-awaited Messiah had come, having performed the miracles that confirmed his testimony, having discipled those who would follow after him, there remained one final act of obedience. To allow the harvest to come in, it had to be paid for. And that is why our Savior so many years ago went willingly to the cross to face the wrath of God and ensure that for everyone who would ever believe in him, in Sychar or in Spokane, there would never be the cup of God's judgment, but only the feast of Christ's bride. He went to that cross and, if you recall, said something pretty remarkable at the end. Do you remember when Jesus told us this morning that his food was to accomplish the work of God? In John chapter 19, verse 30, having come to the very end of his life on the cross at the moment before his death, we read this. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That word, therefore, finished, is the same root as the word we saw this morning, accomplished. Jesus said, my food is to accomplish God's work. And when he was on the cross and had endured the wrath of God, 
he was able to say, work complete, job done. Hallelujah. He sowed his very blood so that we might become a harvest of forgiven sinners. Dead on a Friday, in the grave on Saturday, he rose on Sunday morning, and it is likely that very morning that Jesus rose that was also the time when in the temple the high priest was doing something that might have looked strange but was very significant, taking a small bundle of barley, the symbol of the first fruits of the fall harvest, and waving it as a grain offering before God. Jesus was not the only one who sowed first. He was also the one who rose first as the first fruit of the harvest. As Paul would declare to the church in Corinth, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For Jesus, his work is done. He now prepares a place for us to join him in an unending Sabbath. But for us, the food of doing the will and the work of God goes on. For look, the fields are ripe and white unto harvest here and there and there. And see those fields just beyond lying fallow and empty. They need the seed of the gospel to be scattered there and tended diligently until the Lord returns. And so in your hands this morning, you hold the bread and the wine. Of these, Jesus said in just a couple of chapters in John 6, 55, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one for whom the will of the Father was spiritual food became himself spiritual food for us. His last great feast of obedience has become for us our first great feast of eternal life. And so take a moment now as the music team leads us in this song to reflect on the work of our Savior for us and on the great work into which we have now been called in his name. And then afterwards we will partake together.